Hi, welcome to the Freudcast. Namibia is known for a few exceptional things. The Kalahari Desert, the Skeleton Coast, breathtaking wildlife and some of the world's most beautiful sunsets. But what you might not realise is it's also home to one of Africa's most inspiring and innovative first ladies, Mrs Monica Gengos. A qualified lawyer with over 20 years' experience in the financial sector, Mrs Gengos has been First Lady since 2015 and has combined her high-level expertise with President Gengos' War on Poverty and Inequality. Through the One Economy Foundation, the First Lady is focused on sustainably lifting vulnerable populations, and in particular women and girls, out of poverty. For this Freudcast, Her Excellency spoke to Freud's Zulum Elamogo in between appearances at the United Nations General Assembly Week in New York City, and they began by talking about the foundation. So, um, as you may infer from the name, One Economy is an aspirational um, name. We we dream about a Namibia, a, an African continent, which is one economy, because in Namibia and many African countries, you've got two economies. You've got um, a first economy where um, a small number of the population exist and they live relatively stress-free, um, economically empowered, almost uh, first world lives. And then you've got a second economy in which the majority of the population um, live very difficult um, lives where affordability, accessibility and economic uh, opportunity um, is not the norm. And the One Economy Foundation's um, aspiration is to build a bridge where people from the second economy can cross over into the first economy. Um, and our uh, look at the data suggests that if you empower women and girls, you've already gone halfway in resolving the issue of the second economy. So women, the empowerment of women and girls becomes a very important um, um, enabler mm. for reducing inequality in an African context. Brilliant. And how long have you um, been running the One Economy Foundation? We've been doing this for um, five and a half years. And um, so I know that there's this thing where people will say she's just, it's like first ladies, almost like beauty queens. The minute that we are in these roles, um, we have some kind of um, fluffy foundation. And the minute we're not in the role anymore, we discard it. And um, and I understand the criticism. It, it does happen. But um, it's called the One Economy Foundation and not the Monica Genkos Foundation for a reason. Mm. Um, the idea is to entrench its work, is to show evidence that our projects are working, our programs are effective, and that it outlives me. Um, it outlives um, the political office and that it basically lives for those it seeks to empower. So we've been at it for about five and a half years, but I think there's a good 50 more years to go with it. Excellent. Yes. Um, I mean, I'm Nigerian myself, so I know the sort of pitfalls of African institutions. They tend to be myopic and don't have the longevity that you're speaking of. So yes. it really is inspiring, actually, to hear about how you intend to set up something that lasts much longer than your own well, tenure. Yes, I call myself a, a reformed <laughs> capitalist because um, before I became First Lady, I used to run the largest private equity fund in um, Namibia. Mm -hmm. And my focus was really capital returns. Um, and a lot of the things that I'm exposed to now as First Lady from a social perspective are not things I used to concern myself with as the head of a private equity fund because all of a sudden now I've moved as a person who is aggressively in pursuit of capital returns and transformed into somebody who understands 
um, that uh, social returns are as important as capital returns. Because what is the purpose of earning optimal capital returns in a country where the social fabric is falling apart and where the social development is far behind the capital development? Um, so that's why I say I'm a reformed capitalist. And a lot of the work that I do with One Economy Foundation, I think, um, is me rectifying um, the naivety and ignorance with which I operated when I was in the capital markets. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Um, very, very insightful. I want to ask, what were your inspirations in the creation of this One Economy Foundation? Uh, is and Be honest with me, was it a fully original concept? Or did you see something you liked being done effectively elsewhere and sort of adapted it for your own context? So it was original. Um, the name as well. I've got, a, I've got fantastic staff um, who are all significantly younger than me. So they've got uh, better ideas. They're more in tune with what's happening on the ground. So they came up with the name. They came up with the concepts. Um, and they come up with the programs. And I will shout at them. I'll disagree with them. But we ultimately do what they want to do. Um, and it works. So I trust them. I trust the... Uh, the experience, I trust the influence, and I trust the um, ability to have their finger on the pulse with what the issues are. Um, and I'm grateful for that relationship that we have, because I think a lot of the things that they say we should do, I don't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. But I do agree with the outcomes, because they do tend to be right um, a little bit more than I am on these type of issues. So it was very original. It wasn't copied from um, anywhere else. And I think that should be the model for any uh, developmental initiative. It must come from the ground. Um, it must listen to those who are affected by an issue. And it must implement um, to the needs of the people where they are and not set some global agenda in New York City or Washington, D.C., um, and expect it to work um, in the downstream. It yeah. must be from the bottom up. Absolutely. Uh, and can you give me some details as to how you um, intend to implement your vision? So perhaps some targets yes. um, and milestones that you'd like to reach. So what we do is we focus on three things. Capital, confidence, capacity. Um, so with the capital part, we do a number of things around microfinance for instance. So we are quite good at um, raising capital, and I think I lean a lot on my previous networks and experience um, in capital raising. So when we do fundraising, that's how we look at it. Um, we give very clear targets on what we regard as social returns and how we should do that. One of them is really doing microfinance differently. I know that microfinance isn't a panacea and it has a lot of problems, but what we have done um, is we've managed to roll out a a responsible microfinance program that really um, negates all of the concerns about costly access to capital, really being able to do um, mentorship and training and capacity building within that context, but then mixing it with social issues. So if we find, for instance, a former inmate um, who's finding it difficult to find opportunity, those are the type of people we look at these programs, because if he was to revert back to his coping mechanisms, um, women and children are the most affected. We look at women who um, suffer domestic violence and try and match those who are looking for access to finance. So we try and, and match what we see as societal problems 
with access to the finance that we provide. So we've got an access to finance uh, program that looks at building access to capital on the confidence building part. Um, the biggest destroyer of confidence um, is unresolved um, trauma. And there's a lot of unresolved trauma in our societies, particularly around sexual violence, mm. both past, um, ongoing. Um, and we do a lot of mental health work, um, especially with young girls and women. Um, we do a lot of uh, trauma debriefs. We do um, lots of court assistance, whether it's court preparation, whether we've got experts who go into the courts and they um, fight against bail, for instance, of... Um, of perpetrators of sexual violence. Um, we do a lot of work around just building happier, healthier, more resilient, uh, functional families. Because again, um, when the family is dysfunctional, society is dysfunctional. So a lot of the work that we do sounds esoteric, it sounds um, like there's no clear outcome, but you cannot, you cannot build a society um, that works when people are broken. And as a post-conflict society, the country that we live in, and I think Nigeria has um, similar dynamics, mm. is that you must fix people. And the easiest way to fix people is when they are young. Um, it's easier and cheaper to fix a broken child than to fix the damage that is caused by a broken adult. And that is really what we look at. Um, so because they aren't clear deliverables in this type of mm. work, um, it's very difficult to convince the funding around it. But I think we found a model that kind of uh, can show the impact of the work that's done. Um, we're lucky as a first lady, we have um, access to networks. So often, so if I'm running a private equity fund and I want to raise capital, I need to be very clear with my investors about what the returns are going to be, what the advantage for them is. Um, I'm not held to the same standard when I'm fundraising as a first lady. Mm. Um, so I hold myself to that standard. So the first you enjoy standard, some grace? Do I? <laughs> do I enjoy? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, it's indulgent. And it's not focused on what we do, so I must be focused on what I do. Um, so the first decision I made as a first lady is that it's unearned privilege. Um, and I have a decision to make. Am I going to use this unearned privilege and translate it into economic benefit for myself and my family? Or I'm going to use this unearned privilege and access to benefit others. And I, I've, I've taken the latter decision. Um, and like um, with all unearned privilege, it comes with a lot of responsibility. So I take that responsibility seriously, and that's why we do what we do at the One Economy Foundation. And that's why we also focus a lot on governance-related issues, because, again, I'm not unfamiliar with the challenges mm. that these type of foundations bring when they are unregulated, they are politically powerful. Um, um, so the, the responsibility then lies on those in and around the foundation to ensure that the governance framework um, is clear, that it's not a... It's not a a sticky channel where the money coming in somehow finds its way um, in other areas and that it's a, a conduit, a smooth conduit where what is given ends up in the hands of those who need it. When I listen to you and it's like uh, a new Africa I'm hearing, um, I wonder uh, why you feel the need to come to New York to 
talk about what you're talking about. Is there um, a desire there to perhaps present a new image of Namibia, of the continent to the world? What do you think you sort of gain by being here in this global hub? So it's a, it's, you talk about a new Africa and um, the same Africa we there are still militaries overtaking um, political rule, particularly um, in the last year and a half. Um, it's the same Africa where, for instance, the Namibian president has come to present very big plans on um, utilizing hydrogen energy. So the new Africa remains um, a very complicated Africa where we are on different paths. But I think when you look at the collective story, I do believe in a new Africa. I do believe in the new African. Um, it's not a neat story. It's not a story that lacks um, nuance and we accept the good and the bad. But I think the overall picture is that it's a better Africa and we all have a duty wherever we travel, whether it's you or me in New York, um, to present and speak about the better Africa We've seen what the worst Africa looks like. Um, and I don't think it can get worse than what it was. It can only get better. And I think mm-hmm. it's your generation that's going, to, um, that's going to implement and breathe life into what we refer to as the better Africa. Um, so I grew up in the diaspora. I was born actually here in New York City and raised entirely in the United Kingdom. Um, so I'll describe my relationship with the continent as complex. Yes. But what's your message to um, diasporic young Africans like myself uh, in relation to the continent and the motherland? Yeah, so I know what it feels like to be raised in one world but still have a leg in the others because if your parents are still alive, I think you get a serious dose of African parenting on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. So I think when it comes to young people in the diaspora is, uh, is two things. Um, the first is that when you look at the numbers... Um, relative to the numbers of young people who remain in Africa. It's a small number of young Africans in the diaspora. It is a small number. But it is a small number of Africans who've got a unique experiences, unique networks um, and ideas. And there's going to be a moment where this complex relationship has to translate itself into something. So um, a lot of the change that many of us speak about can only happen with everybody's involvement, um, those in the diaspora, those who are at home, uh, being able to work together and say, this is the Nigeria or the Namibia that we want. This is the, our parents and our grandparents speak a certain way about Nigeria. They had specific experiences. Um, and when I speak to my children or my grandchildren about the continent where my parents came from, I want to tell them a different story. Mm-hmm. And what is it that I can do? So whether you are good at... Um, IT or, or media, there must be a way for you to translate um, what you've learned here and um, invest it back into where you come from. And I think the digital age enables you to do that. You don't need to go back to Nigeria in order to make a difference. You can do it right here from New York City. I wonder what you think about um, black and African integration into Western countries. Um, I know it's a uh, long winding road in some ways and it's yeah. complex but do you have a perspective on I think on we this? all as Africans we all have um, family members loved ones friends who've made this transition um, there's young people like you whose parents made that transition and had children 
overseas, but there's also people who've done that. And, and I know, um, and it's probably true for your parents as well, that after a while, you've been gone for so long that you don't feel like where you came from is home anymore. But you've been in this new country overseas for long as well, but you're not treated as if you're one of them. And that's where this complex relationship happens, where you both, you have a feeling of distance and familiarity with where you come from, but there's still a feeling of being a foreigner where you are. Um, and that makes the African existence um, a difficult existence, whether you're at home or abroad. And, and really saying to yourself, home is actually the only place you can call um, home. And how do you improve that? Um, and it's not a discussion where your parents can do it in their generation. You certainly can't do it in your generation. But there must be a decision at some point to say we must fix where we come from. Because you don't want always having to answer questions about where are you really from. <laughs> yes, I hear that often. Um, First Lady, thank you so much for your time. My final question is, um, what's the one thing you would like the world to know about Namibia and Africa? What, it, what would that be? Um, Those are two questions in one. You can first take it, questions. yeah. So Namibia and then Africa, let's say for the new decade, the 2020s and beyond. I think what I'd like um, people to know is that there's a lot more going on in Namibia and Africa than what the media portrays. And what's going to be important is that people get up and explore the world, um, go to countries like Namibia, um, visit an African country, but also realize its complexity. Um, as small as Namibia is, we are complex. As, as large as Africa is, it's a complex place. And there's no way you can watch CNN or, or read the Financial Times and have a honest or um, reflective view of what's happening in the places that we inhabit. And listen to Africans. Um, they are... Uh, we've always been excellent storytellers. Um, so I don't know why our stories aren't listened to when we speak about our continent. Thanks to Her Excellency and to Zulam as well, as well as you for listening. Keep an ear on the Freudcast for plenty of other interesting conversations with fascinating people and an eye on LinkedIn and Instagram to see what else Freud is up to. I'm Matt Barbette. Bye for now. <laughs>